That's the great thing about both information law and data protection law, particularly data protection law. It applies to everyone, everywhere. I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. The barristers on TV tend to race about in wigs, usually in the criminal courts. But there are some less well-known areas of law that offer every bit as much interest and excitement as a life of crime. Planning law, environmental law and information law are, perhaps, not areas that feature on every wannabe lawyer's list, so we wanted to find out more. On today's episode, we speak to James Pereira QC about how his planning and environmental practice is not just about zoning laws and eco-campaigning, but about selling a vision of the future. But before we hear from James, Chris Knight explains why data protection and information law is a growing area that intersects particularly well with public law and crops up in all sorts of cases, from local authority bin collection to Facebook data harvesting. Although he confesses that it's for law geeks, he reveals how information law is breaking into the mainstream. Welcome, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Can you start just by telling our listeners a little bit about your practice generally, and then we'll go on to talk about information law in particular? Yeah. So my practice is probably roughly 50-50 splits between what I would call general public law work, um, judicial review type stuff, and information data protection law, which usually encompasses freedom of information work and why particularly now wider data protection angle stuff and that's the there's quite a strong link between those two areas the freedom of information work is quite it's obviously connected to public authorities so it's very much comes out of a sort of public law mindset even though it's a slightly different or specific statutory regime and the data protection stuff applies to everyone, which is great um, in terms of the variety of work you do. Uh, But there are particular issues and particularly important issues for data sharing and how you go about handling, protecting and handling personal data for public authorities that gives rise to especially interesting and difficult issues. Something that I think we need to clear up straight away is what's the difference between information law and data protection law? They're closely related, but there is a difference. So information law generally means um, the law arising from information access regimes, which are principally the Freedom of Information Act and the Environmental Information Regulations, i.e. legislation that allows you to make requests of bodies for information that they hold. Uh, And data protection law is the, the regime of law that protects personal data Um, And that is, as people now are probably used to hearing, contained primarily in the General Data Protection Regulation from the EU uh, and the Data Protection Act now 2018 um, in the UK, although there's been a Data Protection Act since at least 1984. We do a lot of work for the Information Commissioner, who is in all of the information Freedom of Information Appeals. And that was quite a that felt like quite a good way of doing something that was quite public-y, Uh, getting used to thinking about how public authorities had to think about things, what sort of issues they were thinking about. Lots of the exemptions involve a public interest balancing test, so that's it's all very public policy type stuff, quite quite akin to the sorts of things you might be thinking about in more classic public law across all the areas that public authorities do, from 
bin collections, about which there is a disappointingly large number of FOIA cases. Um, right <laughs> FOIA, up, FOIA is the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah, um, right up to you know really big cabinet minutes on invasion of Iraq type stuff. Because one of the most important exemptions in the information access regimes, like FOIA, is the personal data exemption which requires you to get your head around how data protection law works, which takes a bit of time. Um, and <laughs> can you, how, can you how tell much us? time, exactly? <laughs> um, well, the first time you have to sit down and work through it, it probably takes uh, a good few hours to sort of piece, work through uh, the scheme. Days. Yeah, well, possibly, <laughs> possibly days. Um, to piece through the data protection legislation, which is um, almost deliberately... complex and unreadable Um, but when when you when you have taken the cold towel off your head and you come out and you sort of got a sense of how it works in that context then you're in a much better place to use to understand how it works outside of the freedom of information world and and applying it on its own two feet and then all of a sudden you're you're in that small pool of people who are called upon for some quite difficult questions understand so just to go back to some concrete examples you yeah. you might get um, a FOIA case in relation to bin collection yeah so can you explain to our listeners what does this actually mean to you sitting at your desk what are you asked to do what does the client want what have you got to look at so it depends who you're for um, but in any freedom of information appeal there will be three parties usually um, there will be the information commissioner Uh, against whose decision notices all appeals lie to the tribunal. There will be the public authority, whose information it is that was requested, and there will be the requester, who sought the information for reasons of their own. Sometimes you know what those reasons are, sometimes you have no idea what those reasons are. They are usually supposed to be irrelevant. Just bearing in mind, if people haven't had a great deal of experience in information or data protection... Mm. um, the Freedom of Information Act allows people to ask public authorities for information. So you have a you have a you have a right to request any information held by a long list of public authorities, most public authorities, um, and you can ask them for anything. And they have you they are obliged to respond to you, confirm whether or not they have the information you've sought, and then if the and then provide you that information, unless they're one of the many exemptions applies. Okay, so back to the bins. Who wants mm. to know what about bin collection? Local authorities get a lot of um, all public authorities, but particularly local authorities get a lot of requests, and a lot of requesters just want to know something that's of great interest to them and how that's affecting their personal lives. Might not be of the world's most thrilling bit of information to you or I but they want to know but it's affecting their day-to-day lives and they want to get some sort of answer from their local council about what's happening so it might be that there appears to be um, a lack one case was about uh, a lack of regular collections of household rubbish Um, and people residents felt that it was supposed to be collected every two weeks and it wasn't being and was there had some decision been taken that it was going to be less or was there a policy that wasn't being followed so they were asking information about that and you know it's not it's not the sort of information that's going to set the world alight but it mattered to them because if you've got your bins overflowing it's not it's not very much fun 
So if they don't get the the information they want, eventually it may end up with you and you have to decide whether or not the public authority uh, should be providing it. Is that... Yeah, so that's, yeah that's broadly it. And or arg- either arguing for the requester that it should be provided, arguing for the public authority that either they don't have it or it shouldn't be provided for some reason, or if you're the commissioner depending on how the commission has decided the information commission has decided it at an earlier stage one way or the other the nice thing about acting for the information commissioner is that they will quite routinely pop up on either side of the argument and are quite prepared to switch sides in the middle of a case if <laughs> if if the evidence doesn't go the way that, that people were expecting it to go wow and and what sort of courts tribunals hear these cases so all freedom of information cases go to the first tier tribunal um, open brackets, information rights, close brackets. So it's quite a, it, that's quite nice. Um, it it it's a it's a specialist tribunal. That's what th- those are the cases they hear. It's quite an informal process, deliberately so. Most re- a lot of requesters represent themselves, um, and it's intended to be an accessible, cost-effective process. You don't get you don't get your costs if you win, uh, or only in very exceptional circumstances. And the tribunal. Is very used to how the legislation works, sees a lot of the arguments on a regular basis. So that's the, the entry-level information law. Yeah. You mentioned that it can get a lot more complex. What does a more complex case look like? So, uh, well, to give you an example of um, maximum complexity slash impact, last week I was in Luxembourg in the Court of Justice arguing about the legality of international data transfers out of the EU to the US uh, and the impact of all of the Snowden revelations on whether or not those transfers could happen. So does the fact that US national security agencies um, can uh, require access to data that has been sent about me, if I say the particular example is Facebook, uh, that's the context of the case. So pretty much all of Facebook's data is collected in the EU through Ireland and then is automatically sent to the their US holding company for it to be processed and used in various different ways. And once it goes to the US, or in the course of it going to the US, there is at least the possibility that the US intelligence agencies will harvest it and will scan it and um, in various different ways to work out if there's anything they want to know uh, that's in that. And is that sort of thing... Uh, does that sort of thing mean that you shouldn't be Facebook should not be allowed to send any of your data outside of Ireland to the US or not? Um, and to what extent can EU rules require different standards of non-EU member states, sovereign states who have other constitutional democracies who have their own systems of protection? Uh, and not surprisingly, that's of quite a significant concern to the UK um, for no ob- ob- obvious. <laughs> impending reasons. Wow, gosh, and that's really far more interesting and sexy than I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the, the concept of sexy and data protection don't come along together very often, but just occasionally it becomes <laughs> it becomes quite high profile. So, Chris, what does your professional life look like over the course of, I don't know, let's say a three-month period, because I know that day-to-day is going to be different? It is varied. I think Data protection is one of those areas where there's a high proportion of advisory work as opposed to litigation. Because it's quite difficult to get damages, 
because in most cases, most people are not don't suffer particular loss from the processing of their personal data. They may be irritated by it, but it doesn't usually cause them particular loss. There is a, less of an incentive to sue. That's all. That's always been a litigation problem for the data protection area. So there's a very high proportion of advice about how do you go about dealing with a problem. There's a lot of sort of high level, particularly if you're working for public authorities, central government other public bodies, there's a lot of advice about how do we structure ourselves in order to make sure that we're compliant, because they care about getting it right, which is not always quite as true for the private sector, who are more interested in how do we deal with a problem when it's happened. Um, you might well be spending some time on dealing with regulatory action, being take either being taken by the commissioner because you're working for the commissioner, quite often true in my case, or for someone who is on the receiving end of the commissioner's action, so dealing with the commissioner's angry letters saying, why are you doing this, explain yourselves, or thinking about um, appealing uh, action that the commissioner has taken, and those appeals go to the, the same information tribunal. And I suppose some, in a way that some of the more day-to-day -day stuff will be your Freedom of Information Appeals, um, which are usually one or two days in the tribunal, and the tribunal sits all over the place. Um, from and I've got about, I think I've got about three or four uh, responses to draft in Freedom of Information Appeals over the next couple of weeks. So it sounds like there is a mixture of paperwork and yep. court work, yep. but possibly more paperwork than, than court work. I think that's, that's probably tr more true in this area than many others yes so in terms of our listeners who are thinking about this as an area what sort of skills do you think they definitely need to have intellectual rigor i suppose because it's not the sort of area that you can just dash off in dash off lightly so and a, and a preparedness to think carefully um not Heart, uh, and I don't always find that very easy myself, but um, in an ideal world, that's what you'd be looking for. And someone, people who are interested in how the law f interacts with real life, because that's a real problem for data protection law. I mean, the routine complaint about data protection law is that it stops people doing things that they need to be able to do. And for the vast majority of the time, that is not true. If common sense says you should be able to do something, data protection law almost invariably allows you to do that thing, but working out how you w wind your way through the myriad passages yeah. is, is not always straightforward. So if someone out there is listening, thinking, Do you know, this actually sounds, sounds like me, I'm a bit of a law geek, I like the sound of that intellectual rigour. Is there any work experience that you would recommend um, for those people thinking about starting in this profession, in this practice area? There are a number of charities and NGOs who work in the sort of privacy data protection field. Privacy uh, International, is that? Well, Privacy International, the Open Rights Group, um, a number of the sort of journalism groups like the Media Law Defence Association and Article 19, um, which is a reference to the um, ICCPR uh, equivalent freedom of expression provision. So there are there are a number of there aren't that many groups who are specifically concentrated on data protection, 
because you know sometimes it can sound a bit boring. Um, but there are a number of, there are a number of organisations who are operating that wider privacy sphere, and they are conscious that they a lot of the issues come up in that sort of area in this sort of area as well. So if you're really interested and you want to get to grips with it, doing a bit of work or connection with those sorts of organisations might help. And there are some sets like yours who who are really kind of specialised in information law, but are there sets who who just dabble in information law? Yes, there are. There's quite a small number of sets with any sort of um, significant number of practitioners who are quite specialist. But particularly information law, actually, there are a lot of sets who've done a few freedom of information cases because if they're sets that do work for public authorities public authorities will from time to time have a information appeal and may well go to that person and that person say well i've not done one before but it doesn't look that complicated and it isn't that complicated um and so yeah there are lots of people who do government work will often have done freedom of information work for those um for their government department clients. Uh, so there are quite a lot of people who, yeah, there are a lot of people who dabble um, and across all areas, and they're most, but you, you mostly find them in the sort of public law sets. So if somebody is um, thinking about applying for pupillage and interested in information law, probably good advice is don't just pin all of your efforts onto information law. You no. know, understand that it intersects with lots of other areas, that yeah. you shouldn't just sell yourself as a purely information law practitioner. Yeah. But that it can be a real... I mean, it, it strikes me from what you said that this is an area of law that is only going to expand in the foreseeable future. And therefore, selling yourself as having a bit of experience in it is going to be quite attractive to some chambers. Yeah. But if you pin all of the... Oh, sorry, I keep saying pin all the colours to the mask, but... Put all your eggs in the information law basket. basket. Exactly. Yes. If you put all your eggs in the information law basket, that's yeah, probably I think not it's, a I think it's fair to say it's still a sort of practice area where most sets, including ours, would be slightly surprised to see a, an applicant who applied saying, all I want to do for the rest of my life is information data protection law, partly because that sounds a bit odd, but also partly because it, it won't be very easy to do that from day one but um, it is certainly true to say that the area is growing and it's becoming it's becoming a bit more mainstream oh goodness me whatever next (laughs) (laughs) i know thanks very much that's great thank you so much for coming to do this if i'm allowed this plug 11kbw do an information law blog called panopticon and difficult though it is we do try and make the summaries what's happening in the case law sound vaguely entertaining and we're reasonably good at keeping it reasonably up to date so actually if you've got for example interviews at places where you're wanting to talk about this that's quite a good accessible resource of seeing what's been happening in the last few months it won't give you a this noddy's guide to how the dpa works but it's quite hard to find one of those i mean if you're if you're interested and you want to if you if you want to start from the basics actually the best place to start is the information commissioner's website which is intended to try and help people through step by step how it all fits together and what what things mean and they do a very good job James Pereira QC is consistently ranked among the top silks in his field, planning and environmental law, which is why we thought that he'd be the perfect guest for this episode. James, welcome. Morning. First of all, can I ask you, how did you choose your practice area? Yeah, so I never really wanted to do law. I wanted to do natural sciences at university. I love biology, I love nature, all those kinds of things. So... um, 
but I have a kind of, uh, I have an Indian father, so if I wasn't going to be a doctor, I was going to be a lawyer. So I ended <laughs> up going to university and studying law, and um, I didn't really enjoy studying law at all. I found it very dry and very technical, very sterile. Uh, but so when I came out of of my degree, I was trying to think, what can I do that kind of marries what I enjoy and what I'm into with this thing that I've studied? So so I thought, well, I like sciences and I like. Uh, the world around me. So I thought that in the environment and planning uh, might be something interesting. So I did a master's at King's it, focusing on environmental law and that's how I got into things really. And for those of our listeners who aren't familiar and for those podcast hosts who also don't know very much about <laughs> environmental and planning law, what, what is it? <laughs> okay, so uh, let me tell you what I do. I do planning and environmental law and then along with that something called compulsory purchase and compensation. So I'll tell you what they are. Uh, planning really is about um, the regulation of developing land and using land. So if you want to build an extension on your house, you might you might need planning permission. If you want to build a housing estate, same thing. If you want to build a nuclear power station, if you want to change the use of uh, a piece of land from one thing to another, you might need consent. And then when you've got your consent, you might not understand what you can, can or can't do with it. So you might need legal advice on that. So I'm involved in that process. And sometimes... Um, Sometimes it's quite small projects I do. Sometimes it's big things like uh, wind farms or major road projects. I was involved in the uh, Olympics, things like that. And so a lot of it's about um, creating stuff because you're, you're generally, unlike a lot of areas of law, you're kind of looking to the future and trying to, trying to create something new. So it's very creative and it's a lot, a lot about kind of selling a vision and, or selling a story. So that's the planning side. Environmental is kind of what you might imagine, um, things to do with pollution and nature conservation, um, noise, stuff like that. It, it fits into planning very well because when you're getting consent for a project, you have to think about what its impacts are going to be. A lot of it's European-based, so species protection, habitats protection, that's all European-based. Um, compulsory purchase is about the state's power to acquire private land so when you're you need to build a big project like uh hs2 or the channel tunnel or the olympic park uh there are loads of different landowners and there's no way they could all by themselves get together and and, and deliver the project so the state's got a power to take that the land from them and there's a process and law involved in that and then compensation is about what you then have to give those people to compensate them for the land that's been taken, how you value the land and arguments about that. So that's, that's kind of what I do. So who are your clients then? It sounds like you have a variety of extremely uh, interesting clients. <laughs> Lots of different people uh, and organisations. So I guess there's, there's the public sector work. So the public sector tends to be the regulator. They're the authority that gives or withholds the consent or that promotes the compulsory purchase order. Uh, or that has to give the compensation. And then there's the private sector, which tend to be the developers. Sometimes they're working in conjunction with the public authority because the public authority has the power, but the developer has the money and their kind of vision to deliver the project. Um, often they're working against the public authority because the public authority has refused consent, so the developer will appeal. Um, and sometimes it's private individuals, uh, either because the projects are small or often in the environmental field, you find a lot of uh, people, private individuals or, or small groups who are very passionate and motivated to protect the environment or to, to promote a particular agenda. So often those kinds of groups get involved as well. I was interested by what you said, that this is perhaps in contrast to other areas, a creative mm. field. 
What sort of disputes then are you involved with? That can be really, really varied. I guess in this field, in planning, there are policies that set out objectives, things, stuff that development's expected to do. So it might be about the carbon footprint or its sustainability or the design of a building, what it's got to look like, how it's going to fit in, what materials it's made of, what the space inside is like, how it interacts with the sun, what the kind of passive warming of the building might be. Um size of the rooms, all sorts of stuff, what the land uses are on different floors, you know, do you have like shops on the ground floor and then residences on top, uh, how it's going to fit in with its surroundings. So, and then different people will have different ideas about what, what's right for that. So the developer will have one idea and often that's got a commercial driver behind it because they need to make money, otherwise the project doesn't work. The planning authority will have another idea because they've got the, the, the wider public view of what people need or what the area wants. And then individuals who live nearby and businesses will have their own ideas because they live there and they'll have their own kind of political viewpoints. You know, you can't build that there or that's too big or that you can't, we don't want a glass monstrosity or we need more community s services. So there are all kinds of things uh, pulling in different directions. And I guess a lot when I say it's creative, it's about trying to find something that works as much as possible for everyone within the constraints of what the client can create. I would say. And so what does your day-to-day -day life look like? How often are you in court and how much is paperwork? For people who do what I do, it can be extremely busy because if you're doing kind of back-to-back -back cases, they, they, the more senior you get, the heavier the work tends to be and it can be very demanding. So some people are kind of in court you know, a few times a month and then doing big inquiries. Some of these, some of these planning inquiries or um, hearings for large things can go on for weeks or months. So, so that can take you away from home or take you out of London for a long, for a long time. Um, I tend to regulate my work quite carefully. So, so I guess uh, within an average month, uh, some days I'll just be going to chambers and advising clients on projects. Um, a lot of it you get embedded into the team quite early on so that you can help with the strategy moving forward because you, you, you're engaged in a process that can take weeks or months. So it's like steering a kind of ship and getting the crew to understand what their roles are and where you're going to go and so on. Um, and then court, it varies sometimes a few times a month, sometimes not at all. And it's usually the high court doing legal, uh, fighting legal disputes and, you know, one or two day hearings are quite common. And then inquiries, I do a few inquiries a year uh, that you get a lot of notice for when they're coming so you can build in your prep time and so on. So, so it's varied really. I guess the other really nice thing about it is you get to go on site visits. So if you've got a client who's promoting something out in the countryside or in a different town or city, you know, you jump on the train and you spend a day wandering around and visiting places and getting to know people and, and the kind of sense of, of where this new project is going to be and that's that's quite good fun. I think that a lot of students these days think much more certainly than I did about their well-being and their lifestyle. Yeah. Is it an area of law that allows you to regulate that to some extent? Yeah, I, I would I would say so. I mean, uh, in no particular order, I guess one of the great things about it is you a lot of the big pieces of work you get a lot of notice advance notice of so this thing of things coming in last minute it does happen often you know sometimes something needs to be done urgently but generally speaking the processes are quite well understood and measured and so that's the first thing i guess the other thing is it's an area of law that's very well resourced 
the public authorities dealing with in this particular sector tend to resource cases very well. The private sector is well resourced. So you have a lot of support and therefore less pressure. One feels less pressure on oneself. That it, of course, it's got a lot of pressures, but, but um, you tend to be able to draw upon resources and assistance. The teams tend to be reasonably large, so you've got different expertise to help you. And then um, you tend to go through kind of quite intense periods, but then be able to plan more uh, kind of easier time at the end of that. So I tend to, after I've done an inquiry or something, um, book in some some time off, and I don't mean like months, but you know, <laughs> have a few days just to kind of recuperate and so on. So it's you can you've got the opportunity to manage stuff quite nicely. Oh, that's really interesting. Can we ask you the the questions that people are often too embarrassed to ask Mm. about earnings? What sort of level of earnings are junior barristers sort of early in their practice likely to earn and how high does it go up? Yes. So um, I I obviously don't know specifically people's earnings, but um, the pupillage awards tend to be pretty sizable. So uh, in the kind of, uh, without being too specific in the kind of 50 or 60,000 category that will be an award with uh, and guaranteed earnings kind of mixed in so so that's good um i would say people not to five years are earning high tens or probably within the hundred thousand bracket i'd have thought quite depending depending on you know obviously how successful they are and, and what kind of attitude they take to their work um above that successful juniors can earn several hundreds of thousands of pounds you know in the kind of three four hundred thousand pound mark i would have thought and when you're in silk um there there are without a doubt silks who are earning kind of a million plus so i would say about this area there's the capacity to earn um uh, as much money as you could conceivably need unless you've got a particularly (laughs) (laughs) demanding idea of life um but but i think what's important to understand is uh you need to choose what's going to fit for you and and of course the high earnings are are the result of not only excellence at being able to do the job really well but also a, a commitment to putting in the 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 hours you know you don't you don't you don't you only get back what you what you put in as far as the money goes but there's not really a a kind of a, a limit on that it's a very it can be a very lucrative area i should also say you know there are a lot of people in this area who are doing a lot of um more what i might call kind of community or or environment kind of green environmental work who will do work for uh ngos and pressure groups and community groups and so on and so 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 they might not be earning those big numbers but they're getting a different kind of reward so there are lots of opportunities to be, for, for everyone really depending on what your outlook is when you're educated as a as a barrister, you go through this rather formal process where people kind of tell you that this is the way you should do something. And one understands that because teaching has to have a kind of a core and a framework and so on. Um, and when you're studying law, you kind of think, what's this all about? Because I, personally, I found it really boring. But when you start practicing, it's about problem solving and it's about dealing with people. And then when you do advocacy, you can kind of do what you want, um, you know, so long as you're communicating effectively and you're serving the client's ends, you've got a whole choice of ways that you can do that, you know. If you want to be um, 
pompous and arrogant, you can be pompous and arrogant. If you want to be uh, playful and exploratory, you can be playful and exploratory. If you want to be humorous, you can be humorous. If you, and you can pull upon these different things. And so for me, I guess that's what I really, that's what keeps me going in the job. It's the ability to bring your own self to the way you, the way I do it. Um, whatever that might mean and um, and I think people at the bar probably really find their realm and and find their power when they when they get finally get the confidence to think you know what I know I've been told this is the way that it should be done and I know I've seen other people and they all try to do it this way but this is me and I'm going to do it like this and and some clients will love it and some clients won't like it and that's fine because there's plenty of clients for everyone and I'll go with the clients that like me and the clients that don't like me are for other people and that's all right. You've got to have an interest in the world around you because it is about changing the, 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 the kind of fabric of what we see and what we experience in the, in the environment. So you've got to have an interest in that. Um, you've got to be have an interest in people and what makes them tick and the kind of stories that they tell because people get really um, passionate and engaged about development projects and you can't really afford to be dismissive of that whether you agree with it or not it's a different thing but you've got to be able to kind of engage and see things from from different perspectives and different people's perspectives i think you've got to be a good team worker because the projects tend to be multidisciplinary and involve uh, it's like putting together pieces of a jigsaw, really, and and so you've got to be able to have a sufficient grasp of the different roles that different people have, and um, you've got to have a good, I would say, uh, sense of being able to move from the kind of big piece, strategy, high picture dreaming kind of realm to the nitty-gritty, uh, detailed nuts-and-bolts realm. You've got to be able to deal with both because you're, you're, you're involved in, a, in, in, in strategy, but in order to de deliver that, you've got to be able to take hold of the, the detail. So, um, But I would say that makes it all really interesting because there's so much variety that sometimes you're advising on, on strategy and that's a really kind of dreamy place to be. And other times it's a very technical question about you know, what does the law say about the interpretation of this particular clause? And that's a very detailed piece of work. So you get to kind of jump around. Different a lot. skills. Different skills, yeah. So for those listeners who are thinking this sounds like a great practice yes. area and they want to sign up, is there any work experience that you would recommend or are there any additional qualifications you think students might need? Um, okay, so it's a very competitive area. I guess it falls within the realm of, you know, the commercial law at the bar it's generally it's a, it's a kind of commercial area so it's so it's competitive it tends to uh attract very bright people i would say you, you don't have to be exceptional in order to succeed in it my, my my view of the bar is you've got to have a certain amount of of um intelligence and then the rest of it is about your people skills and your common sense and all of that and other stuff so, but, 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 but there's a practical point, which is just, you know, getting pupillage interviews and then getting uh, pupillages and tenancies, the academic standard's quite high. So I think that's worth being realistic about that. I would say, obviously, do mini pupillages and so on. Um, doing work experience with, with related areas such as 
in local authority planning departments or with um, architects or planning consultancies or environmental groups, things like that, that could be helpful. And then seeing stuff in action, so going and seeing a planning inquiry or a, a, a hearing where they're um, looking into a large development consent project like a nuclear power station or things like that all of these hearings are public you'd have to kind of like do a bit of googling to find out where they're going on but just going and seeing what the style of work is because then you'll see what this what what the barrister looks like they're doing um, and whether that's something you might see yourself doing can you combine a planning and environmental practice with other areas yeah you can so there are people who do what i do and then do um kind of land law because that's you can see there's some relationship to it there are people who do um general administrative a lot of general administrative law so public authority law i do i do some general administrative law but some people do a lot of it because planning uh, and environment because it involves a, the public sector it also involves judicial review and um uh, the legality of public decisions so that's that can then spread into you know um education law and um public sector financing and all sorts of other other things i guess most people who do it will do the the planning and the environmental stuff at least because it tends it goes together very comfortably and and the client base is the same um and the and the law kind of washes over each other and your contacts tend to be the same and the people you're against tend to be the same so it's a very comfortable area to to be to to be in I imagine that there's quite a a lot of European law involved mm. in what you do. Are there big changes ahead on that front? Uh, who knows? <laughs> I don't know. I tend to I tend to take each day as it comes. So so when it you know as and when the change gets announced, I'll figure out what the change is. Obviously, sometimes one needs to have an eye on the future when one's advising or, or planning a strategy. But but we don't really know what's going to happen. I think the current position is that everything's going to stay the same because there'll be like carryover provisions so it'll be the life continuing as normal until the government whoever that might be decides what they're going to change but but the european stuff is quite significant because it's a lot of the backbone of the more environmental side the environmental impacts assessments species regulation habitat regulation um the more kind of core environmental stuff tends to come from europe Generally, when there's any change or uncertainty, that tends to mean more work for lawyers rather than less. It does. <laughs> we, we maintain the mysticism that it's all very difficult so that it gives us something to do. <laughs> Thank you ever so much. Pleasure. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Pupillage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe, brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. It is really interesting. I mean, it's interesting if you're a bit of a law geek. Okay, And, yes. you know, the bar is quite... Bar is a good profession quite heavy for people. On law geeks, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's quite quite a well designed profession for those people because particularly data protection law is quite a complicated regime, and there's not a lot of case law about most of it. It requires you to do a lot of thinking. Not very many questions have an easy answer that mm. you can say, "Oh, well, that's decided by the Supreme Court in that case." Yes, here's my two page advice. Yes. Um, for those of us who like getting stuck into these things, that's quite rewarding. You have to think about, you have to really think about what the answers might be and test yourself.